Мамой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. I've long wondered why so many great works of 19th century Russian literature are set in some anonymous, drab, and nondescript provincial town called N. We never know where N is or what makes it special. N also tends to be inhabited by a variety of lesser nobles, eccentrics, charlatans, obsequious bureaucrats, and bored, angst-ridden youth engaged in a variety of petty intrigues and performances. Thanks to Anne Lounsbury's Life is Elsewhere, I now know the literary trope of the province as homogeneous, static, and anonymous speaks to the location of cultural and political power in Russia. Power is in the center, Petersburg and Moscow, whereas the province is some godforsaken backwater. How space is organized in the literary imagination of writers like Gogol, Chekhov, and Dostoevsky also served as a meditation on Russia's provinciality to Europe. So what did the provinces mean? How were they represented? And what does that say about Russian cultural identity? Here's Anne Lounsbury with some answers. Anne Lounsbury is a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. She has published numerous articles on Russian and comparative literature and is the author of Thin Culture, High Art. Gogol, Hawthorne, and Authorship in 19th Century Russia and America. Her most recent book is Life is Elsewhere, Symbolic Geography in the Russian Provinces, 1800-1917, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Anne Lounsbury. Okay, so uh, just to um, start our conversation, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Sure. Well, my name is Anne Lounsbury, and um, I teach Russian literature and comparative literature at New York University. Right now, I'm the chair of the Department of Russian and Slavic Literature, as I guess we call it, at NYU. Um, And my background is in Russian and comparative literature. I have a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard. Um, My main interest is Russian, but my PhD is in comparative literature largely because when I was applying to graduate school, I knew I wanted to do Russian, but I also knew that my Russian language skills were not yet strong enough to be admitted to a Russian program. So I had very good French. So I applied to complete programs saying I was going to do French and I got there and then switched immediately to Russian, which worked that sounds, that sounds like a really good a good plan to do. Yeah, it worked out well. And so I'm a Russianist, definitely Russianist, but, um, and I spent a long time in graduate school becoming a Russianist, but I, I see things Russian through a comparatist lens. And I have a lot of chances to teach 
um, novels, especially from other European traditions and from the American tradition. Well, that comparative approach and, and looking at, at Russian literature through a comparative lens certainly lends to, you know, this book, your new book, or your most recent book, which is Life is Elsewhere, Symbolic Geography in the Russian Provinces, 1800 to 1917, which, and just that you said that comparative um, or lens, it really comes clear in this book. But what inspired you to write it? What inspired me to write the book was really what I didn't see in the 19th century Russian tradition. And I think that the reason I noticed something not being there was because at the time, and this was in graduate school, I started thinking about this, I was also um, studying a lot of American literature, taking a courses in American literature, and the American tradition, certainly the 19th century tradition, is really all about regionalism. You can't imagine 19th century American tradition without thinking about regions. And so I looked at the Russian tradition and I thought, well, where's the regionalism? You know, why aren't we seeing this like in, in this huge, fairly diverse country? Um, why are we not seeing powerfully regional schools? of um, And that's what started me thinking about why Russian literature instead developed what I came to think of as the idea of the provinces, provincia, um, as opposed to the idea of regions and regionalism, which is what drives certain other traditions. So, I mean, this is an interesting paradox because so much of the great works of Russian literature take in the 19th century are set in the, so the provinces, right? It's set outside of urban space. They're set in provincial places, which are not always, but very often, anonymous provincial, provincial places. Right. That and that's what that's what's actually really interesting. That you it, it does, and you state this. You know, you show this that it. You know, it, the province is kind of a. It's it's everywhere and nowhere in this respect. Exactly. It's kind of this weird, weirdly, weirdly homogeneous blank space. Like once you're outside of the two capitals, the two stolice, um, as long as you're not in an exotic borderland, you might as well be anywhere. Now, once you get to an exotic borderland, any of them, you know, whether it's Siberia or the Caucasus or even Ukraine, um, then you're somewhere. You're not in an anonymous kind of homogeneous blank anymore. But if you're still more or less in something that might count as, you know, European Russia, you're in, you're in a blank space and you could be anywhere. But it's really it's really striking once you start to look at it. And once you once you think about it in comparison to French, British or American literature, where that is really not the case. You know, you have specifically located you might have crappy provincial towns, but they're in specific crappy provincial places. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I, I, to get to this, I want to have you talk about, you know, one of the concepts you, you begin the book with to, as, as a way for cultures to conceptualize space. And you actually make a comparison between an American spatial geography and a Russian one. And that is the, the difference between grids and circles. And, and Russia, Russia is a very circle 
based place with the center and everything radiates in and out of the center where you compare to say somewhere like the United States, which is more grid like. Yeah. And, and again, um, you know, I would emphasize that I'm speaking about the 19th century because of Soviet period, it might be somewhat different, but um, in the 19th century and earlier, um, often the way that Russian space was conceptualized was as a series of concentric circles centering on the capital, right? Centering on Moscow. So if you look at maps, they often look like a dot, which is Moscow, and then these circles going out from them. And that's the, the Zalatoya Katsol, right? The golden ring, the, these circles around Moscow, and then roads radiating out like spokes. So to some degree, the the space really was organized like that. And that had to do with, you know, uh, post roads, mail service, things like that. Um, but I think it also became a sort of a, a semiotic way of organizing space where all of this, the concentration of meaning and power um, was located in that center, which was usually Moscow. But the thing about it was that it could move, right? Conceptually, it could move. It moved to Petersburg. And even though Petersburg is not in the middle of anything, it could function as that kind of center. So semiotically, you have this space where significance and power are in a middle. And as you move away from that middle, you kind of get increasing entropy, and if you think about it, and you can see that in a number of maps, of Russian maps that, that you can look at. Um, the one I used in the book, I think, is from 1808. But, and then the kind of paradigmatic American map um, that imagines the space of North America as a grid is, um, I think it's known as the Ordnance Map of 1789-85. I can't remember, but it's Thomas, it's Thomas Jefferson's kind of way of imagining North America as this open space to be organized and colonized. It literally like laid down a grid over all of North America and every square could be subdivided into tiny little squares down to the size of homesteads um, or expanded into the size of states. And it was completely uniform and extended all the way to the Pacific. So you can look that up online. It's easily available. And I think the original is at, is at University of Virginia in their archives there. And so that implies a totally different um, way of imagining space and also state power. Like state power is going to be kind of um, equally distributed all over this space, both power and rights. Right. I, I'd actually, I wanted you to talk a bit more about what are the, the, also, you know, not just the political implications and, and particularly the understanding of power, which is, is fascinating, but the cultural implications of this and how this, this, this difference between circles and grids affects, like, say, the Russian literary tradition, for example, and even in relationship to America. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, I think that among Russians... Even now, there's this very, very powerful sense that some places are more real than other places, right? Matter more than other places or matter differently. And I, I'm sure that that is changing now. Um, certainly, I think the Internet has changed that. And I think that there are 
um, regional identities, regional cultures that are very powerful and productive. Um, but, you know, sort of typical 20th century high culture intelligentsia, I, I, you know, I have had people from that culture say things to me like, uh, it's not possible to live in the provinces. Like what, there's no oxygen there, it's on Mars, right? So, um, you know, there was this sense that it was just a total wasteland. Um, and I think that had to do with those circles, right? With that like super ultra saturation of cultural meaning in certain places. And then that meaning was drained in other places. Whereas I think in America, you would have like, you know, if you lived in New Orleans, you could think that New Orleans was super saturated with a certain kind of meaning, right? Um, or LA or, you know, Maine. And um, I do think it, it creates a different kind of literature. Now, one thing I want to step back and say quickly, because I, I feel like I always need to say this early on, is when I'm talking about these ways of, of imagining, you know, meaning and real life, I'm really talking about the cultural imaginary. I am not saying that people did not did, did not live real lives, not think real thoughts, did not produce real art in provincial places, not at all. I am talking about how the cult how the center imagined those places. Right? So every time I talk to a historian, I have to, you know, I hasten to say, I'm not talking about real life. <laughs> I I know that there are lots of people in Samara and Svir and, you know, Kostroma or whatever, living very intelligent, real productive lives. So going back to this paradox that I mentioned before, is it's an interesting irony that, that though there is this very centralized spatial imaginary, a lot of the great works are set in the provinces. So why, why the why is the provinces are this, you know, this main setting for, you know, people like Gogol or even Dostoevsky and others? I think the short answer is, is that uh, the provinces are us, right? I think that the provinces, that, that there's a persistent kind of anxiety that Russia itself is provincial whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing in relationship to some version of European culture, my culture, and sort of thinking about the provinciality of the provinces is a way of meditating on that. Um, Cause otherwise, why would you, why would you keep setting these masterpieces really in the provincial outback? I think it's a way of meditating on what it means to be, in a somewhat peripheral relationship to a dominant culture. Does this lend to the fact that they're, they, they're mostly in, in kind of unknown and anonymous places that they could stand in for a general sweeping, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like if you're, like when Dostoevsky writes Demons, Biesli, and it's in a Gorod N, he actually, the events on which Demons is based those events were real life events, but they happened in, I believe in Moscow, either Moscow or Petersburg, I can't remember right now. And how bizarre that he decided to move them to a nameless provincial city. 
So he really was sort of experience, he, he was sort of leaning into the provinciality of Russia um, because in his diagnosis, I think, in demons, he's saying that Russians believe all these like crazy revolutionary ideas because they're gullible. They believe anything that Europeans say. Um, whatever bullshit comes to you from Switzerland or whatever, you're going to eat it up. And I think he really he, he really emphasizes that by making these people provincials, even provincials in real life. But at the same time, is there is to kind of to meditate on this provincialism of Russia, which is a stand in for Russia and the relationship with Europe is are they seeking to find an answer for this in the pro like the provinces as the setting? So the answer for these questions of Russia's persistent provinciality. It's a good question. It's such a good question. I think. I mean, I guess. I don't know what their answer would be. My answer would be is that the provinces make the best art, right? That Platonov, Gogol, Dostoevsky, all the best weirdo art, not all the best art, but all the best weirdo art comes from the provinces, right? That's when Sinyavsky says, what is it? Art has the provinces in its blood. It's naive, envious, astonished, right? This sort of outsider-ish art that comes from being a provincial. So I would say, you know, I would say that, that the reward they get for being, for leaning into provinciality is they make the best art of the 19th century. <laughs> you know, kick everybody else, you know, out of the ring. They're so dominant as far as, um, certainly in the in in the prose tradition of the novel, and I I think that's that comes from that outsiderness. So, but I don't know what they would say is, is the answer they're looking for. I mean, Dostoevsky would probably be some uh, creepy nationalism in the end. You know, um, you know, we're, we're it's like you don't know it yet, but actually, we're even better than you. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're gay Europa. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, <laughs> I mean, cause I was actually also thinking of it in, in terms of like, you know, a lot of these, these people are just a generation or two removed from the provinces themselves. Totally. Right. I mean, Gogol, Dostoevsky. Now, you know, Pushkin, obviously early generation, not, he's, absolutely not a provincial. He's, he's, he's a nobleman who's at home anywhere. And Tolstoy, not Tolstoy either, because Tolstoy occupies, he's at the center of the world, no matter where he goes, because he's sort of, he's, he's kind of always already at Jasne Poljana, right? Graf Tolstoy and his class position means that he's kind of always in the middle and at the top. Um, so he's like less concerned with provinciality. He really doesn't care. Um, he's kind of to the side and all this. But Dostoevsky, all of these these women writers, writers like Goncharov, who are kind of one step down. You know, I, I don't I don't mean to say the step down because I don't I don't want to kind of replicate that hierarchy. But one step outside of the you know the sort of most holy can. You know. Um, I, th I think so many of them are one step outside of 
outside of what they've just come from the provinces. It's interesting too because you know a lot of these these great novels. It's not that they're interrogating, say, the inner some sort of like Volkish Russian Russianness of the peasantry, right? No, because that's pretty much inaccessible to almost everybody. You know, peasant authenticity slash you know subjectivity is you can make it up like like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky did and you can or you can do like Grigarovich and write a lot of peasant dialect uh, you can you can try but it's really tricky and it's really really tricky to make it work as a kind of you know folk foundation of your culture right now there's a lot of new scholarship both in Russia and by young Russianists in North America specifically about peasants writing about peasants writing about writing there's no real you know not until the very end of the 19th century there's not much writing by peasants but writing about lower class people um uh by slightly you know less higher class people trying to bring them kind of make them visible in the literary tradition it's really tricky so so what are some of the tropes that you find about the provinces in this literature? Oh, they're wonderful tropes. Um, boredom, <laughs> right? Super boring. Um, uh, there's also um, everything the same, the same, the same. You know, dust. Dust is a big one. Um, copying and imitation, right? Uh, and behindness. And, you know, Atstalist, always being like two steps behind. And what I love about the, I mean, I, I love all of those tropes, especially the boredom, but, and sometimes it's like a boredom that's so intense, it's almost apocalyptic. Like we're so bored that the end of the world is coming. A lot of it is that they're, they're very similar to the tropes you see in, um, uh, literatures about in, in writing about the, the colonies, like in post-colonial studies have pointed to this, like these people who are on the periphery and they think that they're outside of real history and they're going to die of boredom because stasis, that's the other trope. Nothing happens. Yeah. This is what I, I, I was thinking of too, since you mentioned the co- a colony and then the comparative there is because you do have a bit of mention about, and this follows from the famous Kluchevsky notion that Russia is a country that colonizes itself. And, and so talk about this relationship between the province and the idea of the province versus the colony. Because Kluchevsky's statement makes one think that, well, the the general conception of Russia is, you know, a multitude of colonies, of colonized, conquered space that isn't necessarily ours, but we've made it ours by, you know, whatever means. Whereas province is... And the question, the question there always being, who is the we? I mean, if the we is the autocratic state, yes, that works. I'm not, I don't feel qualified to address kind of the specifics of post-coloniality, um, in relationship to Russian history, but I would say that as far as the relationship between Provincia and Colonia, Russians even in the 19th century were kind of aware that there was this kind of blur, you know, in the two categories. And even in this Chekhov story that I look at and that I love, it's called 
uh, it's in English, they call it unofficial business. It's called Pajilam Slujbe. The This guy who's stuck out in the provinces and doesn't want to be there, he says, this isn't real life. I, I want to be in Petersburg or Moscow. That's where real life is. Zjes provincia colonia. Common colonia. He uses them as if they're interchangeable. Right. So to them, they feel the same. Um, and I do think there's a kind of blurring of the two categories in the popular understanding, even. Um, now, of course, the the weird and problematic thing is when you start talking about different ethnicities, different groups of people who maybe had their own rulers, their own, you know, different religions. I, I don't know how that how that relates to the um, uh, to the Russian state treating Russian Orthodox peasants as colonized people. But in a sense, it did treat Russian Orthodox peasants as colonized people. Does this this idea of I'm just thinking about the tropes that you mentioned of particularly of boredom of it's all the same nothing happens here does this lend to a certain perception of time and history Yeah to me the most weird and wonderful thing one of the most weird and wonderful things about the provinces is that time there is really messed up it's it's not only that time in provincial places is behind because if it was just behind, then you would be catching up. Or at least have the potential to catch up. Yeah, exactly. You'd have the potential to catch up. You'd be 50 years behind, but eventually you'd be on the same line. It's more like it's this jumble, have a mix of different times together. So like I can think of this famous Turgenev story called the uh, uh, Hamlet of the Shigrov district. And there's a there's a there's uh, some sort of estate a meager country estate out on the steppe somewhere. And or you see this in Gogol's country estates too, um, where there'll be this like cultural detritus out there that sort of reached them out on the steps. And all the objects are from different times and places and they've kind of just washed up there and you have no idea why they're there. Like, you know, some dried up flowers, a picture of a watermelon, a picture of an Austrian general, a bust of, I don't know, you know, Beethoven, something like that. And you get this feeling that nothing, there, there's no like organic relationship to the past. It's just whatever shows up. And what about the future? Because it makes me wonder if the apocalypse came, maybe the apocalypse might pass them over. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, who, you don't know. Maybe, maybe it already came and they're just like living out the afterlife, you know? And, it's really um, it because whatever happens, like capital H history is happening somewhere else, happening there. And, and that is really horrifying to people. Well, like if you think about in, in fathers and sons, um, there's, we always think about the estates and fathers and sons, but there's one provincial town which of course is Gorod N, you know, town X, nobody knows what it's named. And there's this really, really trashy woman in the town. Her name is Kukshina. And she is like the absolute embodiment of provinciality. It's extremely misogynistic image. Provinciality is very feminine. And um, she goes blah, 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 on and on. 
is she talks in these long, breathless paragraphs with a bunch of jumbled up, unrelated cultural references all at once, like Bunsen burners and Waldo Emerson and you know England, everything all mixed up together. Peasant commune, and you feel like she, like she had everything. She has no past and no future. And at the same time, and she says that, um, or no, Bazarov says that um, the provincial town burns down every every five years and has to be built anew. So that that begs the question: Is okay, you know, because a lot of this, and you've mentioned a couple of them, a lot of these authors, these novelists, have a the town N, which is basically town X. What is this town? What does it look like? Where is it supposed to be located? Well, it. Basically, it's supposed to be located in a very nondescript region, probably flat, but not necessarily the steppes. Could be the steppes. Um, and it, as far as what the buildings look like, they should probably, you know, starting under, mostly under Catherine, but even earlier, there were these rules about what the town buildings were supposed to look like. They were even, you know, there were these facade laws about how many windows the governor's house had to have and, you know, how many, how the buildings had to face the streets and they were policed these, these rules. So they, this, this was the state trying to make the towns look quote unquote, like towns, you know, like European towns. So these towns were supposed to look the way they were supposed to look. (laughs) They were always failing to look like that. So they were supposed to look like an attempt to look like something. Like so, there would be these facades of a couple of buildings that were trying to um, meet the requirements, like meet the specs. But then there'd be a bunch of huts around, and maybe some pigs rolling in the mud. And and just to be clear, again, I'm really not talking about reality. I'm talking about representation in literature. I don't know what they looked like in real life. I really don't know. Maybe they were lovely. And what and what about like what about the things like the streets, the way the houses look? Where do people live? I'm trying to understand like okay, in representation again, and I you know from what I know there is some the representation was not inaccurate. They tended to be um, somewhat disorderly. You know, there the things were not lined up in tidy ways. And you know how they call Moscow used to be Bolshaya part of because people tended to, um, there was like a kind of integration of, of um, uh, you know, farming or rural space with more urban space. So I think that was still happening in these villages. And so they didn't, or in these, in these towns, like in a Gubiensky Gorod or a, um, so I think that they would look like, like a jumble kind of, but then you would get to the town square and you would have the post office and the, maybe the, the governor's or the mayor's house. And those had these facades that were, that were mandated by law to look a certain way. Um, and at what the authors lean into is the disconnect between those facades and the quote, real life, of the puddles and the dust and the pigs and the waddle fences and the shit. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And who lives there? Um, It's interesting. I'm trying to learn more about this now for another project. Um, 
a real mix of people. I mean, obviously you have the, the, the peasantry outside the, the cities doing, or the towns doing agricultural labor. But um, I think it varies a lot from region to region, but I think you have a kind of grab bag of people in the towns um, doing various kinds of trading and making. And it's, I, I've been trying to figure out a little bit more about the the Sastayanya or the Saslovia and how they're organized in the towns. And it's really, really difficult for me to figure it out because precisely because it was quite messy. You have your noblemen who are categorized as noblemen. I'm talking more now about the earlier part of the 19th century. And you have your high, your high merchants who are categorized as Kupzi, the Kupiechstva. But then you have a big jumble of people who are I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and and if I think back to my reading reading Dead Souls, Gogol's Dead Souls, they're also these people, these kind of provincial noble types, lower nobles. There's a lot of performance in there. There's intellectual performance, there's style performance, there's the whole society performance. And there's people trying to cling on to some degree of status, you know, either official status or unofficial status. There's there's lots of that going on. Um, people trying not to sort of slip down the hierarchy, which was entirely possible. And also these, these people who were technically members of the nobility who, who lived like peasants. Um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, um, it's, it's hard to figure out um, ex exactly um, how, both how people were categorized by the state and how they actually lived and thought of themselves. And there's the question of representation. Right. And, and that's the, like, so what is the representation of, of these people in these novels say to you about maybe some of the questions? Because again, back to where we started, where the province seems to be, you know, it is this space of meditation. Like, what is it? What's going on? You know, what does it mean? I think what's, what draws writer to writers to provincial characters, you know, in Gogol and Dostoevsky is that they get to meditate on, as you were saying, performance, like performance, fakeness, authenticity and inauthenticity, right? Provincials are under this constant pressure to perform. They are always, um, they're not born to authenticity the way that somebody, somebody with a secure position is in a secure place. They they're always looking over their shoulder. They're always thinking, you know, are these the right shoes? Do I have the right accents? Um, you know, did I bow at the right moment? And that creates this, this self-consciousness, which is absolutely wonderful for literary representation. Dostoevsky's and Gogol's, that's their whole, that is so generative. You have all these totally paranoid characters. Yeah, very, very much so on so many levels. They're so paranoid and they're so like, you know, they freak out when their button comes off their jacket and um, that is so provincial, that degree of like acute self-consciousness and they can't get away from it. They, they will even that's the wonderful thing about provincials is that even if they get it absolutely right, 
Like if they perform perfectly, they're still provincial because they're trying. It's so, I love that about them. Now, what about women writers? Because you do treat how they dealt with the provinces. What stands out amongst the uh, female novelists and writers? It's, well, first of all, there are other people who could answer this question better than I do. And there's also a lot of work being done right now to make them visible again, because they were really, really prominent um, in the 19th century and they've been lost. It's the typical story, just like happened in the American tradition and the French um, there. And now there's work being done to, to reclaim them. So um, the, based on what I know so far, I would say that some of them did find a certain degree of freedom in the provinces and, you know, it was cheaper to live there. Maybe you didn't have to be married. You could have a version of, you know, room of your own sort of um, uh, and, you know, make a living. You still had to send your stuff to Petersburg to get printed. You still had to have connections in Petersburg to make your living. But, if I, you know, the one I know best is Khvashinskaya, um, uh, and the minute she could afford it, she left the provinces and moved to Petersburg. But do they do they deal with the same kinds of tropes of like boredom and? Khvashinskaya does, yes, definitely. She's one of the ones. She has a wonderful novella called um, Pansionerka, the um, boarding school girl, and it's they're so bored that. You know, you literally think like a meteorite's about to hit the earth. But um, uh, but some of them don't. Some of them, I, and I'm not, I can't remember which text I'm thinking of right now, but some of them talk about, you know, how beautiful it is. And you might not know it, but, you know, our insects in the provinces are so lovely. And um, life here is actually really nice once you get past how it's it always seems to me a little bit compensatory. <laughs> um, uh, but, it, but not all negative, you know, there are sort of positive life trajectories that they imagine in the provinces for sure. Sure. Um, and I think other people are going to do, I think more work remains to be done to sort of see the range of possibilities that, that women writers were imagining. I didn't read enough to, to see the range. Now, another, uh, you know, you, you spoke a little bit about regionalism and of course, Russia with its diverse, not only geography, you know, steppe, Siberia, Taiga, whatever, you know, even once you get into the more colonial Central Asia, uh, but it's also a, a regional in terms of ethnicity, right? It has different ethnic pockets and peoples throughout. Um, how does, how does regionalism such that it is fit within the literary tradition? The first thing I'd say is minimally, you know, and I'm not saying there's no regionalism. I'm definitely not saying there's no regionalism. I'm just saying that if you come to Russian literature from American or British literature, or even say like, you know, French or South African or something, it's, there's a lot less regionalism in Russia than you would expect scale you know, of the country and the diversity. Now, of course, again, to reiterate, once you get to the imperial periphery, totally different, you know, then you're having, it's, it's not just regionalism, it's like different traditions, right? Um, and, and there certainly are regionalisms, say, in the Urals, you know, and in Yekaterinburg, 
um, there are places there there are places that are generating um, their own kinds of local writing. The question is always going to be who will read it outside of those places. There are always I did it. There was this fascinating exchange in the 1870s between two writers. Where were they? Um, Oh, I can't remember right now which city they were in, but one one was in Petersburg and the other was in um, was it Yaroslavl? And they were basically arguing about whether or not the provinces had any reason to have a local culture, whether or not the provinces would ever be of any interest to the center. And the guy in Peters was say, Petersburg was saying, "Nah, just give up." <laughs> So, you know, it, it, with all of this, this you know, staticness of the provinces, when you have, you know, rapid ur- urbanization in the turn of the century, um, does urban space, do you get it in, in the literature, do you get, how do they understand urban space? And do you get a lot of the anxieties that you find amongst European literature about urbanization and these things? That's a really good question. And um, I actually haven't looked at that very much. I want to look at that more in my next project, actually, because I I think the, the answer is going to be yes. There's definitely anxiety about urban space, especially because urban space is what's generating terrorism, right? And uh, urban space is where the people who throw bombs are learning how to run away into the side streets, right? Um, and it's where the where the radicalized workers are. So I'm sure that the answer to that question is yes, but I don't know how it links up with questions of provincia. Can't really answer the question yet. I'm the what I'm thinking about right now is um, my next project kind of relates to that. It's I'm interested in the category of Michanstva and Michelle, sort of petit bourgeois scumminess. Petit bourgeois méchanceté kind of straddles provincia and urban space. And it also straddles the revolutionary divide as well. Exactly. And then people like Gorky, you know, want to extirpate it, you know. Um, So I think I'll get to think more about urban space there. Chekhov is the one who also thinks about urban space and he finds it predictably pretty horrifying. What is this? meditation on the provinces in Russian literature say to you about Russian identity in Russian-ness? I think it's this um, um, preoccupation with being peripheral, right? Um, Which, when I say it, it sounds like a bad thing, but I mean it as actually a really good thing because it is so culturally generative. I think it's what this feeling of being both inside and outside when it comes to what you could just describe as European high culture in a shorthand way. It's just so incredibly generative. You know, it gives you everything from Dostoevsky to Platonov to, you know, Tarkovsky, really. And um, so I think that that the all these these how these images of the provinces come back again and again is um, has to do with that inside-outside feeling. Do you think it, in a way, it's 
trying to figure out how to put this correctly to me okay i'll just i'll just say it, it to me it, it seems to kind of like own own the exoticism <laughs> right like we're going to the europeans are going to provincialize us our own kind of western facing intellectuals are going to provincialize us so we might as well own it i think that's a great that's actually a really great way to say it um i was just saying the other day to someone that in some ways russia still seems to me more quote unquote exotic than say China. And I think that's because of its in-betweenness and because, because of the sort of put in a sense. It is still, I guess I still see it as, a, please cut this out if this is crazy, I, um, as a sort of put kind of place. I think maybe provincia has to do with Tretiput. Does that make any sense at all? So it 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 functions as a, a th- but it's a third way between what and what? <sighs> East West? I don't know. Um, uh, Modernity, traditionalism. Yes, I don't know. You can throw maybe, out all of these tropes. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, it's a sort of it's a way of being in between, but almost like ironically in between. Owning it, like you say, um, it's like it's like it's like Gogol. You know, when Gogol is being provincial, quote unquote, he's also being ten times smarter than than we are. You know, like he's he's okay. Yeah, he's going to be provincial, but with twenty layers of irony that we have to be dealing with while he's provincial. You see what I mean? So it's a kind of provinciality that owns us. Do you think that, that, you know, in this whole discourse of like the provinces being fake, the provinces being performance, uh, but also in this, you know, owning it and, and also using it as a way to be ironic and satirical, is this literature in some way trying to say something about the authenticity of Russia? Like it, it's a weird twist where... Perhaps what they're actually talking about is the authentic. This is what the real. This is what it really is out here in our in our where are we from, right? This is us. Yeah, I think to some degree it is. It's like this is us in the sense that we are an eclectic and syncretic culture, and that is and and that has had brilliant results. And we can be ironic about it, but the results are brilliant. And finally, what are some of the legacies of this literary tradition? Where do you see this beyond, you know, even up to the present? It's all over the place in the 90s. You know, you have um, uh, scary provincial places with zombies. You have um, uh, lots of uh, kind of empty warehouses with, with monsters in them, things like that. I'm not a connoisseur at all of contemporary Russian culture, so I can't really give specific examples. But um, I think there's still the sense of, um, uh, you know, provincial places being somewhat forbidding. There's also a sense that they can be uh, uh, touristically rewarding. I, I once I was in Italy. This wasn't long ago at all. Just a couple of years ago, and I met a couple from Moscow. And I mentioned at some point that I'd been in Tambov, I think. And uh, she said, "Oh my God, you know, why did you go there? You know, Tamjovod <laughs> zombie." <laughs> so 
I mean, it's still there, you know, the idea that, Jesus, these places are godforsaken, you know? That was Anne Lounsbury, Anne Lounsbury's professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. She has published numerous articles on Russian and comparative literature and is the author of Thin Culture, High Art, Gogol, Hawthorne, and Authorship in 19th Century Russia and America. Her most recent book is Life is Elsewhere, Symbolic Geography in the Russian Provinces, 1800 to 1917, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make, and you can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage, and you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Bye.